well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Welcome to another edition of Bearing Arms, Cam and Company. My name is Cam Edwards. I'm glad you're with us on the program. Boy, oh boy, we got a busy show for you today. Uh, Paul Valone is going to be with us, head of uh, Grassroots NC. We're going to be talking about the uh, potential demise of a 100-plus-year-old gun control law in the state of North Carolina. The prospects for the uh, repeal of the state's pistol purchase permit law are looking pretty good right now. We're going to get into that with uh, Paul Valone in just a minute. We also, you know, yesterday, a huge day uh, for the Second Amendment in court. So we started out the morning on the East Coast with the uh, Second Circuit Court of Appeals hearing oral arguments in five separate challenges uh, to New York's gun control laws, most of them dealing with the Concealed Carry Improvement Act, although there was also a challenge to some of the new uh, laws against uh, firearm retailers in the state that the Second Circuit heard. Um, we covered that for you at BarryAndArms.com. Uh, I had the opportunity to listen to most of the hearing as it happened, and I was I was a little um, surprised at at the skepticism uh, the uh, panel uh, evinced when it came to some of these sensitive places in New York State. But I have to say, uh, the makeup of this panel you've got an Obama appointee, I think it's a Biden appointee, and then a George H. W. Bush appointee. Uh, based solely on the you know political appointments, uh, this is a panel that you would think would be at least uh, somewhat hostile to the right to keep and bear arms. And of course, the Second Circuit got the Bruin case wrong, right? The Second Circuit found that there, no, uh, there, 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 there's no real right to carry. New York's May issue laws are fine. Uh, and the Supreme Court said, uh-uh, no, that's, that's not the case at all. So um, regardless of what the Second Circuit eventually says in these five cases, I think uh, the Supreme Court is going to be the ultimate arbiter here. And the court has previously told the Second Circuit, kind of get with the program here. Um, don't take forever in processing these appeals. So soon, hopefully, the uh, court's going to have a chance to uh, weigh in once again on uh, New York's carry laws and the resistance to the Bruin decision. And then Monday afternoon, we saw a, a decision out on the West Coast from U.S. District Judge uh, Cormac Carney, striking down several aspects of the state's Unsafe Handgun Act, including the micro-stamping requirement, uh, as well as the uh, uh, loaded uh, chamber mechanism requirement, uh, and uh, one other uh, feature that California requires all new models of handguns to have before they can be sold to the general public. Now, uh, if you're law enforcement, ah, you can get those guns anyway, right? If you're a special person, you can buy off-roster handguns. But if you're an average Joe or an average Jane in California, uh-uh, you've been unable to buy most new models of handguns that have come out in the state uh, or that have come out in the country over the past decade. Uh, and Judge Carney said, listen, this is implicating people's Second Amendment rights. Just because they can buy some guns doesn't mean that their Second Amendment rights are protected if they cannot buy commonly owned firearms uh, that are, again, in common use for a variety of lawful purposes. This law is, uh, ironically, according to uh, Judge Carney, keeping people from purchasing uh, more accurate, more safe uh, models of firearms that have been introduced over the uh, the past 10 years. Longer than that, if you talk about some of the other provisions that were struck down. A good decision. Uh, again, it's going to get appealed to the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, but we'll be talking about uh, some of these legal issues uh, later in the week, I would encourage you, however, to check out BarryAndArms.com. We are covering all of these court cases for you each and every day. 
even when they make my my brain kind of swim, I was uh, I, w- I was inundated with court opinions yesterday. And it was kind of fun, but man, it was also a little overwhelming. Anyway, today we're not going to be talking about what's going on in court. Today we're talking about what's going on in the legislature, state capital in North Carolina, where SB 41 uh, is on the desk of Governor Roy Cooper. This bill uh, not only repeals the state's permit to purchase a pistol requirement, uh, but also improves the state's concealed carry laws. And as uh, Paul Vallone of Grassroots NC tells us, he's pretty feeling pretty confident. This is going to be the year repeal finally happens. Take a look and a listen. Paul, thanks so much for coming on Cam and Company. Uh, I really appreciate your time, and I'm really looking forward to getting your thoughts on where we stand with the pistol purchase permit repeal this year. Well, thank you very much for having me, sir. Absolutely. So this is not the first time that uh, uh, Grassroots NC and Second Amendment supporters have tried to repeal this law that's been on the books since, what, 1919, I think, in North Carolina. That's correct, Yep. Um, but I did see your email alert to uh, Grassroots NC members over the weekend, and it sounds like you are pretty confident that uh, this year, not only um, did we see this uh, repeal bill get out of the legislature, but but that the veto-proof majority may actually stick. Uh, that's correct. Matter of fact, um, you know, they say elections have consequences. Well, we spent a lot of time, money, and effort in the last election and although some people say that there was a a red ripple elsewhere in the country, we got the red wave. Um, we took a supermajority in the North Carolina Senate, uh, one sh- seat shy of a supermajority in the uh, North Carolina House, and uh, we took over the North Carolina Supreme Court and the Court of Appeals. So we're in pretty good shape right now. Um, we had three Democrats vote for this Senate Bill 41 that repeals our Jim Crow era pistol purchase permit law, and also closes what we call the church carry loophole. Because in North Carolina, it's legal to carry in a church unless that church sponsors a school, in which case it becomes educational property and carrying a firearm is a felony. So, and a lot of times people aren't aware that that that's the case. Um, So we've gotten both of those through the legislature in the past, but each time the governor vetoed them and we did not have enough votes to overcome the veto, to override the veto. This time we've, um, we have 71, uh, we're one seat shy in the House, and um, we had three Democrats vote for this thing, one of whom says he will not reverse his vote, okay, because that was a problem we had in the past. Uh, they would vote for it, and then when the governor would pressure them, they would withdraw their vote on the override. So um, I'm, I'm feeling pretty good about this one. You know, you're not the only one. I was just looking at a uh, story uh, earlier this morning from um, a uh, one uh, talking about uh, what's going on in North Carolina. And uh, I was fascinated that one of the sponsors of the bill um, is now even saying that uh, he he, he thinks that this is going to be a showdown that the uh, governor is going to blink at. This is Senator uh, Jim Perry. He said, Mm -hmm. uh, Roy Cooper's love that veto stamp and we haven't been able to override him. Uh, donations pour in from out-of-state donors when he vetoes certain bills, but if he vetoes this one, his streak will come to an end, and I believe he knows it. I think he's scared politically. We'll see if he has the courage of his convictions or if he lets this become law without his signature. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. if you do have the commitment of uh, one of these Democratic House members that, that they will vote um, to to override the uh, governor's veto, 
that would put, uh, you know, a, a, an actual veto off the table, at least in theory. Right. What do you think the governor is going to do here? Do you think that he'll let SB 41 become law without his signature or do you think he's going to pick a veto fight and, and start he, trying to twist Democrats arms? He's done that with a couple of bills that he's opposed in the past that had come to his desk and said he would not veto them, including one that's a Florida style increase in penalties for rioting and, and civil disorder. Um, but I think think that he's too much of an ideologue i think he's going to veto this one um i mean i could be wrong um if you know we're certainly encouraging him to just let it lie on his desk and after 10 days it becomes law but um i'm not confident that this guy would do that what is the yeah, what never, is, never met a gun you wouldn't ban. Right. <laughs> no, I was going to say, so, so what is the deadline? This was uh, transmitted, I guess, to the governor on March 16th, right? He has 10 yeah, days, no. excluding Sundays. So uh, what is that? Sometime next week is the deadline, right? Yeah, that would be, I guess, yeah, whatever, the 27th or whenever that falls. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. And if, he's, if, he, if it's like the last time, he waited until the last minute to veto us, I guess partially just to break our chops. I don't know. Like I said, he's never met a gun he wouldn't ban. Yeah. So have you already started uh, kind of looking at the calendar here to see is a veto override possible in the regular session? Uh, are lawmakers going to have to try to come back for a special session or a veto override session? What, what, what Have you been able to figure out the no. timing of how this might look? Um, the Republicans, it, it got sort of watered down, but they passed a rule uh, under which they're not required in all cases to give as much notice on override votes. And so I would anticipate the Senate will take it up. The Senate, uh, the one thing I've been impressed about by the way the Republicans run this session, the General Assembly, very efficient, very clean. I mean, they just, I've never seen gun bills run this fast. I'm very optimistic about that. Okay. Um, but um, um, I would anticipate the Senate will take it up fairly quickly. And then the House might have to sit on it a little bit, looking at the counts each day. Uh, they call it the veto garage, okay, where they put all these bills that have been vetoed in and they wait until, frankly, the numbers are right and they have a six tenth majority and they run it. So gotcha. that's the way I would anticipate it working. Okay. You know, you talk about those three Democrat House members who uh, signed on to SB 41 this year. Is that a change from what you've seen in past legislative sessions? Um, what, 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 what do you think was the reason for these Democrats signing on to this bill, uh, given that, again, Governor Cooper and certainly gun control groups trying to apply a lot of pressure to these Democrats? Well, one of them is a retired uh, District of Columbia police officer. And um, I think, although he's a Democrat, uh, a, a black Democrat, um, I think he is um, perhaps more principled than some of his, uh, some other members of his party. And I just, I think in many cases, the fact that they hung the church carry provision onto this adds support to the bill because that one is actually fairly popular. I mean, the fact is, we're not doing anything with churches. We're not offering them any protection that other churches have not had since 1995. So yeah. it's not it's not untried. What about the, the pistol purchase permit itself? Uh, I know that the Sheriff's Association came out um, in favor of SB 41 this year, right? They weren't just neutral on the bill. Actually, they came, it was last session. They had for many years been in opposition to repealing the purchase permit system. But we improved our reporting for the National Incident Background Check System. We added, uh, we require now superior clerks of Superior Court to report involuntary commitments within three days. We uh, we actually, there we go. 
we uh, we require the clerks of superior court to report within three days and other mental health data goes to NICS much more quickly. They've digitized old microfiche records from the 1980s. So at this point, the sheriffs have decided that the old purchase permit law, archaic and Jim Crow era that it is, is now redundant. And they've said so. So yeah. uh, we're, we're pretty pleased about that, actually. You know, we've also seen this weird argument over whether or not the pistol permit uh, purchase requirement should be considered a part of Jim Crow, right? I mean, as you noted, this was put in place during the Jim Crow era in 1919. But I've seen people say, well, I mean, listen, this wasn't explicitly racist. It wasn't written to explicitly deny black uh, people the right to own a gun, which is true enough. But very few Jim Crow statutes really were that explicit, right? You had poll tests. You had, you know, all of these ostensibly race neutral laws that were uh, applied in a very disproportionate fashion. Have you gone back and have you been able to look at the history of the pistol permit purchase, you know, at the time that it was put in place shortly thereafter? What 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 is what is the truth? Was there a racial component to the impl- uh, to the implementation of this law? As far well, I as have you- looked, I have looked into it, especially after I interviewed a reporter from the Raleigh News and Observer who pretty much uh, said, well, I don't see a Jim Crow law here because they didn't say they were passing a Jim Crow law. Anybody who says that does not understand Jim Crow laws because after some violence in the South, just after the after the war, um, between 1867, I believe, and 1870, that, that range, they passed the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments, okay, which respectively ended slavery, applied the Bill of Rights to the states as well as the federal government, and then it guaranteed the right of blacks to vote. Now, um, shortly thereafter, uh, well, that effect- effectively ended a period of time they called the Black Codes, where they were actually running statutes prohibiting Blacks from owning, owning weapons, prohibiting them from voting, et cetera, et cetera. So it ended that. But unfortunately, Reconstruction, well, fortunately, unfortunately, depending on where you look at it from. But in 1877, um, the Compromise of 1877 effectively ended Reconstruction. Okay, The Republican influence and the military occupation of the South ended. And then the backlash began, and the backlash was Jim Crow. That was when you saw the Democrats take back over the uh, local governments and the state governments, and you saw the resurgence of the KKK. During this period of time, it became, and this is what the key to Jim Crow law, the the key to a Jim Crow law is it had to be not about race, because if you said it was about race, it was a violation of the 14th Amendment. And therefore unconstitutional. So um, we we still in North Carolina, and they're still trying to repeal it right now. We still have a literacy test in our North Carolina Constitution, which was directed at making sure that blacks could not vote. Okay, and the the, the ironic thing is that the the left, including the NAACP, is all for repealing the literacy test component, but they're not for repealing this Jim Crow law. They're trying to deny it. In fact, the head of the local NAACP claimed that everything's a Jim Crow law, even the United States Constitution. Well, no, because the United States Constitution was written 89 years before the advent of Jim Crow. All right. Jim Crow was the backlash. Yeah. And, and you know, you're right, too, about how those laws were put in place. Like, I, I can't remember what state it was. It might have been Mississippi. Um, but there's evidence that, you know, these literacy tests that you just mentioned. You can go and you can look at these old tests and you can find where uh, on the test for white applicants, um, even if they you know, may have been illiterate, mm-hmm. you can actually see the little pencil marks on some of these pages where the you know voter register would sort of indicate what the right answer was. Right. <laughs> um, 
But for black applicants, of course, they didn't get that uh, that deference. Right. Mm -hmm. These laws were written, as you say, in a way that on the on it on their face, they're racially neutral. But they give uh, various authorities so much discretion in how these laws were implemented that they could be racially abused. And, And it looks like that's what we saw in North Carolina. Um, I think uh, it was your grassroots NC alert that uh, had a link to a new story. I think this was from like Durham in the 1930s, maybe the 1920s, showing that the vast majority of both applicants and those who had received their permit to purchase a pistol Mm -hmm. um, were white and that many black applicants had actually been turned down and denied. Actually, it even said that the permits were restricted to whites. That's a verbatim phrase. Okay. Um, yeah. The, the key about our, our pistol purchase permit law is that uh, passed in 1919, um, about three years after race riots in East St. Louis, about the same time Missouri passed the same law. And the, the key is that it gave, at that time, the it wasn't the sheriff, it was the clerk of Superior Court who, who gave these things out. Um, it gave them discretion on whether or not somebody was of good moral character. Now, obviously, at that point in time, if you were black, it was likely you were not of good moral character in their eyes. And so that gave them, I mean, the only one I can think of, <clears throat> frankly, that's worse and more blatant was uh, Tennessee with their Army Navy laws. Basically, they prohibited revolvers not of Army Navy quality, like the Colt Army Re- Navy revolvers, because all of the, the Confederate war veterans already had their Colt Army and Navy revolvers, and they had the money to purchase them. On the other hand, blacks did not have the means to purchase anything of that high quality, and so they were <clears throat> effectively prohibited from having guns. You know, one of the I think one of the uh, beneficial aspects of the Bruin decision, beyond obviously recognizing our right to bear arms, is that uh, mm-hmm. we now get to explore this history, and it's been fascinating mm-hmm. to see. Uh, gun control advocates like Rob Bonta, attorney general in California and others defend these gun control laws by pointing to, you know, the the, the racist roots that, uh, well, mm-hmm. look, we, we, we've always been able to exclude dangerous people uh, mm-hmm. and other undesirable people from owning guns. It's just that, you know, back then it was Catholics uh, or, you know, free black citizens, uh, but, you know, <laughs> the, the the racist roots of gun control and the discriminatory roots of gun control, I think, are being exposed on a near daily basis uh, right now. And that would include uh, the pistol purchase permit uh, law in North Carolina. It, it includes me, actually, because I'm Italian raised in the state of New York. The Sullivan law was directed at my people in the early 20th century. Yeah. Yeah. So and, you know, we are hopefully. um we are hopefully near a day where the right to keep and bear arms is truly a right of all the people. Um, and, you know, it has been a long time coming, but uh, I appreciate all of your efforts to that regards in North Carolina. And uh, we're going to keep following along here next week. It sounds like it's going to be a very busy week. Um, what, what's your message to North Carolina gun owners right now, Paul? Uh, contact the governor and tell him to just let the thing lie on his desk. And then we're also telling people to contact the three Democrats who voted, and this is all on our website at grnc.org, and contact the three Democrats and tell them to hold firm in uh, the event of a veto. And we had a couple of Republicans who were not in attendance that day. We want to make sure that they're present for this vote as well. Awesome. All right, Paul, listen, we'll be checking back in with you before long. But again, thank you so much for your time today. Thanks for all of your efforts uh, and all of the efforts on the part of uh, North Carolina gun owners as well. I appreciate Paul joining me on the program. And uh, 
I, I hope you don't mind the uh, the discourse on history, but it 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 does really bother me um, to see this argument made that well, I mean, because it wasn't explicitly racist, therefore it must not have been racist, even though it was put in place at the height of the Jim Crow era, uh, and it may very well have been. So this is this is we didn't really talk about this, Paul and I, but this is again one of the truly insidious things about these Jim Crow laws is that. You know what? In some counties in North Carolina, the pistol permit purchase law may not have been uh, used in an explicitly racist fashion. May not have been. It's kind of up to the issue and authorities, right? But in many parts of the state, clearly it was. Uh, and I would say even if it was not applied in a racially discriminatory fashion, it may well, very, may very well have been applied in a uh, class conscious discriminatory fashion. Right. You're just not, again, that good moral character clause, right? You're just not the right type of person who should have access to your Second Amendment rights. When you have issuing authorities who can make those statements, not based on objective criteria like, well, you're just not the right type of person because eh, you've been convicted of a violent felony. Or, you know what? You're just not the right type of person to carry concealed firearm because you've been adjudicated as mentally ill. And instead, it's, well, you're just not the right type of person to carry a firearm because I know your daddy and your daddy's never been up to any good. And, you know, Apple doesn't fall far from the tree. That's when we get into problems. Right. And that's why these clear objective standards, the Supreme Court has said, may be permissible as long as they're not put to abusive ends. But subjective standards in determining who gets to exercise their Second Amendment rights. No good. No good at all. And, uh, you know, again, I, I'm, I'm hopeful that this bad law is going to be removed via legislative action uh, without the need for court involvement. But, uh, again, don't want to count our chickens before they're hatched, and we do still have a, a ways to go before that takes place. So if you are a North Carolina gun owner, please, uh, I would encourage you to do exactly what DePaul Valona said. Uh, contact Governor Cooper. Contact your own lawmakers and uh, urge them to stay strong for any potential veto override session. All right, let's turn our attention now to today's uh, good deed of the day, our uh, armed citizen story and our recidivist report. We're going to start there with a case out of Phoenix, Arizona. Uh, you know, one of the uh, issues of sensitive places that came up during Monday's hearing in the Second Circuit was airports, right? Uh, one of the judges said, well, look, we didn't have airports back in 1791. So how do we determine whether or not airports, uh, whether there's an analog for airports to be sensitive spaces. Uh, and one of the uh, attorneys for the plaintiffs, argued, well, you really can't, right? Um, you might be able to, again, say, well, you can't ban, you can't uh, carry firearms after you clear security, after you go into the secured area of the airport. That, that would be a sensitive place. But the open areas of the airport are not really sensitive, nor should they be sensitive. Case in point, Phoenix, Arizona, man on probation for sexual assault is now accused of attacking a woman and trying to sexually assault her at Phoenix's Scar Sky Harbor Airport, uh, specifically in the uh, one of the parking garages. This was last Friday. Police called to that uh, parking garage for reports of attack on a woman. Court documents reveal that the woman landed at the airport, headed to her vehicle. It was parked in one of the economy lots. As she got in the elevator, two guys entered behind her. Again, that's not unusual. She asked what level they were going to so she could press the button for one of them. And one of them said number two. One of them said uh, four. So the one guy gets off at level two and he disappears. 
when they get to level four, when leaves the elevator, she's walking to her car. And as she's putting her bags in the back seat, she says this guy suddenly pushes her down. She fell onto the floor of the back seat. And then the suspect asked her if she, quote, wanted to die today. Apparently, repeatedly. She fought back as he got on top of her. She was able to turn around and face him. She ultimately was able to kick him in the groin, knock his glasses off of his face, kept pushing him away until he finally left. Authorities looked at surveillance video and they saw this guy. They were able to track down the uh, suspect, identified a 61-year-old Michael Colville at his home. Uh, he was wearing clothing that uh, seen in the surveillance video and a, a known photo of Colville that dates back to June of last year also shows him wearing the glasses that were found at the uh, crime scene. Uh, according to ABC 15, at the time of this incident, Colville on probation for sexual assault, but they say details in this case not currently known. Okay. Hopefully we find out some more details about that. And I bet when we do, what we're going to learn is that uh, Mr. Colville was out on probation uh, when he should have been behind bars. That is tragically what we see time and time again here. Uh, and we will follow this case. But if nothing else, this is a reminder that you can be the victim of a violent crime anywhere. Uh, even in these, you know, sensitive places, you know, when states like New York say, well, why do you need to carry a firearm in an airport parking garage? What's really going to happen to you? The answer is most of the time, nothing until something does right now. Look, most of the time, in fact, every time that I cook, which is not all that often, every time my wife cooks, which is far more frequently, um, we have a fire extinguisher in the kitchen. Now. Again, it's never been needed. We've never had to pull it out and use it. But I'm awful glad I have it. And I want it there just in case, right? Same when it comes to our right to keep and bear arms. Look, the vast majority of the time when we're out and about in public, we're running our errands, we're doing what we got to do. We're not victims of carjackings. We're not victims of armed robberies. Most of the time when we're at home, we're not the victims of home invasions. But we possess the right of armed self-defense in those extraordinary circumstances where that right is necessary to protect our life. And it's not up to the state to say, well, you only get to exercise that right when your life's actually in danger, which is basically the position that they're taking. No, we carry firearms. We keep and bear arms to prevent those bad actors from getting close enough to us to sexually assault a woman in a parking garage or to invade someone's home uh, and shoot them dead as happened in uh, Chicago on Monday. The right to keep and bear arms is not limited to extraordinary circumstances, although it may be designed to protect us from those extraordinary circumstances of violence. Today's uh, armed citizen story, speaking of uh, extraordinary circumstances of violence, uh, Fort Smith, Arkansas, where an intruder was shot and killed by a homeowner um, that homeowner not facing charges. The uh, Sebastian County prosecutor ruled that this was a uh, justified homicide and the uh, individual in question will no longer uh, be subject to a, a court inquiry. According to police, the uh, homeowner called the Fort Smith Police Department back on February the 3rd, reporting that he had shot a man uh, who had broken into his home armed with a knife. 29-year-old uh, Jacob Webb identified as the intruder. Seems to me like this was a pretty clear-cut case of self-defense all along, but it wasn't until March 17th that Sebastian County Prosecutor Daniel Shue announced that the homeowner was justified in the uh, shooting death of Jacob Webb. Uh, Shue referenced the Arkansas Code that defines justified use of deadly force 
uh, in defense is when a person reasonably believes that the other person is uh, committing or about to commit a felony involving physical force or violence or using or about to use uh, unlawful deadly physical force. Homer told police that he had seen Webb earlier that morning walking down the street, actually said hi to him. But when he back inside his home a short time later, he heard somebody messing with the door. And that's when Webb allegedly broke through the door while holding a knife. After a fight, Homer said he was able to get away for a short time uh, and put some distance between himself and Webb. He used his concealed firearm to shoot Webb one time in the chest. Homeowner does have a concealed carry license. Which I don't think it really matters, given that this was in his home. But uh, Fort Smith Police Chief Danny Baker said that although there were, quote, unfortunately mental health aspects to this case, had the man not acted in a swift and decisive manner, my office could just as easily have been prosecuting Mr. Webb for murder. So, uh, in other words, yes, this homeowner was in fear of their life. Um, the individual in question, Jacob Webb, may have been suffering from some mental issues, but that did not make him any less dangerous of a person once he had broken down uh, the homeowner's door while armed. Finally today, our good deed of the day, in the right place, at the right time, willing and able to do the right thing, a uh, stranger in North Dakota who uh, came to the aid of a family after a, a bad winter snowstorm. Did I say North Dakota? Minnesota. East Grand Forks is actually in Minnesota. It is not in uh, North Dakota. Apologies for that. But uh, regardless, uh, this uh, family, including uh, Jenny Zimbelman and her daughter, uh, in a very scary situation. Car was uh, on its side after they went off the road uh, on Friday during a snowstorm. Zimbelman said that she had never driven in weather that bad. She, she said the car actually fell on the driver's side. So she said she's sitting on her window, her daughter's above her, sort of dangling in her seatbelt. They were 11 miles away from East Grand Forks, Minnesota, on a uh, county road when they uh, had the crash. Um, and afterwards, uh, Zimbleman said, cars just kept driving by. Uh, her daughter, Jasmine Torres, says, I was like, why is nobody stopping for us? Because you can see us through the windshield. She said, I just wanted somebody to help us. I just wanted to get out of the car. I was scared that somebody was going to crash into us, too. Well, according to the family, out of nowhere... A stranger appeared and rescued them from the car, despite the wind and the snow. Torres said it was extremely cold out. Hands started burning immediately. She said, I was still scared on top of the car. So as soon as we both had gotten down, then I felt way better. Um, Jenny Zillman says the guy took off, though, before she could get his name. Called him a superhero. She said to have somebody not know me or my daughter pull over on a very, very bad day, climb on top of a car, open the door, get us out safe, and then he just left. He's a hero. Indeed, he is. Wish we knew who he was, and hopefully uh, they're able to reunite with this guy. But uh, in the right place, at the right time, willing and able to get a, a family out of a very precarious situation. We thank you for your good deed, anonymous stranger, and uh, hope we get to learn more about you in the future. All right, that is going to do it for this edition of Bearing Arms Cam and Company. I'll tell you what, tomorrow we're going to be learning more about Charlie Cook from Riding Shotgun with Charlie. He's going to be my guest on the program. Looking forward to uh, hanging out and talking with him about the fantastic program that he does where he had tools around talking with the second amendment supporters from all around the country i was uh, lucky enough to spend some time in the car with charlie not long ago we'll talk about that as well make sure you check out barryandarms.com throughout the day we're keeping you up to date on all of the latest second amendment news and information that's headed your way and if you like what you see i'd encourage you to become a vip member as well just go to barryandarms.com slash subscribe use the promo code gun rights and you can get a significant savings on your VIP membership. And as always, we're saying thanks for showing your support. We're going to give you exclusive content, news stories, analysis, opinions you won't find anywhere else. Because your support does matter. And it really does make a difference. So thank you again. Looking forward to being back with you tomorrow. Enjoy the rest of UA Tuesday. Until then, be well. Be safe. And be free.